Jean-Luc, wherever you go, we go. Hello, beautiful. Permission to come aboard, Commander. Permission granted, sirs. Welcome to the Titan. Why don't you do us the honor, Commander? Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between the Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton and well, guess what? You wouldn't accidentally want me to become a king, would you, Cam? (laughs) Dear God, no. And this week we have a lot to tackle because we are going to cover Star Trek Day and all the news that came out of that as well as play catch-up for the first three episodes of Star Trek Lower Decks because we were in Las Vegas. So, yeah, we've got three episodes to catch up with this week. Yeah, why don't we just jump right into kind of the big Star Trek Day news. I I think the biggest news to emerge out of this, Cam, is that uh, we have Season 3 of Picard. It is due to arrive February 16th, I believe, 2023. We've got a trailer attached to that. The uh, trailer confirms that, yes, indeed, the uh, TNG cast is back. Uh, Hmm. My my, my emotions in this are are mixed. I am excited AF to see what Season 3 brings me, but uh, my expectations are incredibly low low based on what the first two seasons of Picard delivered but like we have a new showrunner uh, a lot of different people behind the scenes even just in terms of cinematography I can hope that it's kind of like a a, a tabula risa and uh, the, the slate is clean and, and we can get that 10 episode final adventure from Picard that we've all been hoping for what do you think the chances are that that's actually the case <laughs> Very small, but let me cling to hope, Cam. Look, those first two episodes of season two, Picard, I was like, okay, I think they kind of figured things out. And then I think over the next, the course of the next two episodes, I was just, just gutted to see how off the rails the show was and how it seemed to be going in that direction throughout the remainder of the season. And turned out I was right. (laughs) I think I have pretty much bottom of the barrel expectations for season three Picard, which means they can only go up. Like if this show delivers something, you know, at least semi-decent, I'll walk away more happy than I expected to be. So I go into this season more of the expectation or at least the hope that if we're going to bring back these TNG characters, it gives me interesting information as to what these characters have been up to. Um, that's kind of what my hope is. It's not something kind of where you just kind of scratch your head, like, you know, I know seven and the Fenris Rangers kind of stuff. Like I'm hoping that when I play catch up with these characters, I'm excited about where they are. It leaves me in a more satisfying place than Nemesis did. But like the curious thing to me with like what they're marketing and it's why I just, I just can't trust trailers for TV shows anymore because it's like, if you give me 10 hours of footage, I can put together a pretty exciting 90 second trailer. Um, it's like they're kind of selling this almost like propulsive, action-driven story. But this is a 10-hour, <laughs> I'm sure, movie, as they would say. <laughs> uh, like, that's not what it's going to be. 
like it, it seems highly likely you're going to have lulls and diversions and we're going to wander off into different directions. It's not going to be a single-minded, focused story like what we're being sold in this trailer. This is more of probably the inciting incident, but like I really don't know what to expect from the season on any sort of story level. I was at a cocktail party last night, Cam, and uh, I was speaking to a gent there who is a big fan of Strange New Worlds, and uh, he said, you know what the key is? Everybody's just talking to each other. That's that's what it is. It, it, it's people going back and forth. They have different motivations. You know, there are different goals in mind. It, it's people that have a rapport. There's chemistry. There's back and forth here. I have a lot of confidence that you can get that rapport going, that chemistry. You can pay tribute to the characters. I am hoping it's not some wham-bam action theater sort of dealio. I mean, but the thing is, spoiler for the trailer here, the, the, the first shot is like Beverly Crusher with a phaser rifle in hand, which is not really how I remembered the character. That That's not the kind of iconography I associate with that. I, I agree with you. I, I think, look, they, they want to sell it. They want to make it like an exciting thing to uh, potential folks that would only want to come in for the pew, pew, pew. I don't know. I'm I'm just I I'm a little bit wary about what will unfold, especially just so Terry Metalis, the the showrunner for season three, he was saying that he went and talked to every single one of the returning TNG cast members, and he wanted to make sure everybody was on the same page about where their character is and has been for the past you know couple decades. And I'm like, okay, I get that. You want to honor the characters and how the actors feel about the characters, but we got that with Patrick Stewart. And I get the sense that uh, we got the Patrick Stewart show, the, the story that he wanted to tell in season two, and it was pretty awful. It was a miserable ride to go on, and it didn't it didn't really handle a lot of very serious issues um, in, in in terms of mental health uh, very well, it, not well executed. And so I'm I'm just hoping that you're not just trying to placate the actors in order to entice them for one last appearance. Because honestly, it could just fall flat if you're just kind of, you know, just trying to like um, uh, push in the right direction. Say, oh, yeah, we'll do whatever you want. And I think I go into this. I agree with you in terms of just like giving the actors what they want. Like, that's not often the best case scenario. Um, I think actors like to be surprised with material sometimes and actually get to do things that they wouldn't have thought of. Um, but like, to me, this season has to really do one thing and that's to give uh, Crusher some really good material because, you know, when you look at the TNG, you know, series as a whole, her and Troy often got the least to do and Troy got some fantastic stuff to do in Nepente. And I want to see Crusher given the same, we have gotten endless wharf. We have gotten so much wharf on DS9 <laughs> and expanded on that character in so many rich ways that like, am I excited to see wharf back? Yes. But I also feel like had I never gotten Worf again, I would have had my fill of really quality Worf storytelling. If we're going to bring back, you know, Beverly and continue on with Troy, let's finally give them the material they so richly deserve. Well, I don't know what you're talking about, Cam. Uh, Crusher has been given a lot of rich material. Uh, we found out he is a traveler now with Corey Soong uh, in the vast uh. expanses of the universe, right? <laughs> yes, Wesley Crusher. What what a great outro for that character if that's the final appearance. I, I, I can um, take like, that. I, I can handle it that Wesley's just a, a, a traveler. I, and that's all I need to see to have some sort of closure from that character now. Definitely. And I mean, look at the like Beverly Crusher, like what the movies gave her to do. It's um... like embarrassing. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, she and Deanna were talking about their boobs uh, in Insurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did have a phaser rifle. She was holding yeah. a phaser rifle in that movie. What did so. she do in Nemesis? Anything stand out to you? I am racking my brain what she does in Nemesis. Yeah. Uh, the most I remember from First Contact is that she uh, uh, tells the EMH to cause a distraction. And in <laughs> Generations, her most memorable moment is getting shoved into the ocean by Data. <laughs> So they they can't go lower than what they've given her in the film series. We can't even think of what she did in Nemesis Camp. I think this trailer has already given her more than the entire movie era. Yes, I agree. So, okay. Um, For me, my... Okay, this is why I would love to see. She's the captain of the USS Pasteur. You know, that's... Mm. To me, that would make everything worthwhile. I I don't get the sense that's where she is just based on this trailer, but I could be wrong. I, I could... And I hope I'm wrong. But um, that that's what I'm hoping for, at least. Or at least that they acknowledge that she was the captain, and maybe she's moved yeah. on to other things. But, like, I would like to have that element kind of written firmly into the canon of the prime timeline of that character. Uh, one thing I'll add, though, is the uh, the VFX for this, uh, a couple shots of some star bases and some starships, and... Um, I, I, I like what I'm seeing right now. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I, I don't know if La Serena, it, it, it grew on me over season, the end of season one, season two. But when I first saw it, to me, it just kind of looked like a blob. But uh, some of these designs, um, they popped for me. Um, I guess a small spoiler, but uh, Riker is featured there and he's exclaiming about the sight of the uh, the USS Titan. Um, it doesn't look like the Titan from Lower Decks, but I think, showrunner terry metallis went on to explain that this is the uh, titan a so that's how i guess uh, they, they wrap their heads around that so i don't know what uh, william boimler did to destroy the uh, uss titan in the lower decks era but uh, here we go that could be a fun episode right there um yeah and we have uh, seven as i guess first officer on the titan perhaps perhaps like is, yeah, yeah maybe yeah uh, my, my guess is they're gonna have um because Riker, I think they established in season one, he's essentially in the Starfleet equivalent of the reserves as a captain still. And so if he gets to sit in the captain's seats, seven by his side, and uh, uh, one Admiral Picard on his other side, that could be a lot of fun. Like, there'd be, you know, kind of a, the Riker dynamic that we only got to see, really, in season two of uh, Lower Decks. And we haven't mentioned Jordy, but he was a captain on um was it voyager so i i'm curious to see how where they explain he's at here well that so that was the alt timeline from timeless yeah, the 100th episode um if you look at his pips i i i could not discern this but uh people much smarter than me they discern that he ranks as a commodore now so okay. um, that's interesting and and i believe based on the pips that we've seen in the uh, trailers that uh wharf is a captain and you kind of get the problem where, you know, if Beverly's a captain, Riker's a captain, Worf's a captain, Geordi's a Commodore. It's like, this is a lot of people where it's the opposite problem that Harry Kim had. And it's like, are they all just going to be, uh, I don't know. It, it seems as if everybody's like uh, uh, too powerful. Remember in uh, Top Gun Maverick and you had uh, John Hamm playing Cyclone and he was an admiral. And then you had the uh, second admiral at his side throughout the movie. You go over to Val Kilmer. He's an admiral as well. And, and they're all saying like to Tom Cruise, why aren't you an admiral? And it's just like, ah, people, way too many admirals. 
Yeah, I guess TOS was always smart to keep, you know, Chekhov and Uhura and Sulu in, like, the lower ranks, so it didn't become that headache, although Sulu obviously became the captain of the Excelsior in Star Trek VI. But, um, yeah, with uh, TNG, all those people are on the fast track. So, yeah, remember we determined that Riker went from ensign to uh, first officer of the flagship within seven years? Uh, that was uh, quite the dramatic uh, leap there. So, And uh, a spoiler alert for uh, Lower Decks, we can uh, talk about like uh, rapid accession, uh, ascension from uh, ensign to captain a little bit later on. So, look, I, I can't. I, I, I'm... Uh, I, I anticipate seeing TNG Season 3 for purely cynical nostalgia reasons, but in terms of storytelling, I, I has there been a season worse in all of Star Trek than Season 2 of Picard purely from a storytelling level? From a storytelling? And just no. having the basic concept of how to tell a story. I found, like, Season 4 of Discovery incredibly dull. Um, right. But I think just they, there's, they at least kind of understood basic storytelling, at least episode to episode, whereas it was just a complete mess in Picard season two. Well, what about season three Discovery, which I think we said was maybe better than season four, but in terms of telling the story of season three, that's pretty rough. It, it is. It is. I just, it's okay. I, I, I'm curious how my rewatch of Picard season two will feel and that my my opinions on season one uh, I, I was able to kind of get over uh, some of the issues that you get from watching it week to week i found season one rewatch was much easier when you just don't have to think about things you know like logic and i wonder yep. if not having to think about you know logical storytelling that might help in the season two rewatch the only problem is uh you, you spend like eight straight episodes wandering around los angeles which isn't very interesting to me at all. And they keep restacking uh, the story and the plots. And it, it's just like, you just have the characters constantly repeating the same things over and over and over again. And it just really emphasizes how you maybe only had like three, maybe four episodes of story stretched out over the course of, you know, 10 episodes. And ah, I just don't know if you can overcome that. I mean, hopefully with a, you know, whole TNG cast reunited because of all those characters, they're going to have more they want to do with each of those characters, which will help fill out those episodes versus so. kind of the, yeah, spinning in place like season two Picard. But, um, you know, with regards to Star Trek Day, what else jumped out at you? <laughs> okay. Uh, the presentation, uh, I, I watched out on YouTube at 1.5x speed. And <laughs> as it was meant to be seen, <laughs> yeah, the cam. I, I just I, I made it through uh, two hours and five minutes of it. I think it was two hours and twenty minutes. And what a uh, what a cringe worthy exercise in which it's very clear nobody behind the scenes quite knows what this is supposed to be. On one hand, it seems kind of like a, a miniature version of like the Las Vegas convention where you have fans in the audience. You've got like mini panels going on. On the other hand, you've, there's a lot of time spent with the uh, DJ who's like beatboxing constantly. <laughs> um, that was quite off-putting. And there's some technical failures. So uh, Tawny Newsom and Paul F. Tompkins, who hosted this, I both think that they're very charming. Uh, yeah. They had to like just like vamp with the DJ after some technical errors 
for, I don't know, like a, a full two minutes, and that was very awkward. Uh, we did find out, though, that uh, the official Star Trek podcast is coming back for a third season in February 2023. <laughs> Cam, I would not have realized that the show has been off the air since June of 2021, had you not pointed it out to me just a few weeks ago. Um, I hope when they come back in February uh, of 2023, it, it lines up with Picard, and, and what you're doing is... You have the hosts getting insights from some behind-the-scenes crew, some of the the performers talking about what's going on episode to episode. The, so far, two seasons into the official podcast, it's mostly just Tawny Newsom and Paul F. Tompkins, who uh, I, I think are wonderful. It's just bringing on a guest and saying, so yeah, uh, what do you like about Star Trek? Oh yeah, Michelle Yeoh, you're so talented. What do you like about Star Trek? How, how'd you get from dancing into acting? And I'm just bored yeah. out of my mind here. You know, I, I think the first episode they did, I think it was with Ben Stiller. It was actually quite interesting. And then after that, it just kind of dropped off. So I, I, I don't know. I just hope they kind of, they, they figure out some sort of raison d'etre for um, this upcoming season of the podcast. I did enjoy mostly the episode they did with Amy Nicholson and I think Paul Shear about um, The Wrath of Khan, where at least it was like, them kind of just talking about that movie and you know what they liked about it and looking at it from like a critical lens at, at least if they're doing something like that it brings a little bit of interest to me but yeah when it's bringing on you know someone associated with the franchise and just kind of doing these very surface level you know how did you get famous what do you like about star trek like that is i'm sure there's people out there that enjoy that but i find it a little thin yeah um I, but i i was a little confused when they introduced the hosts as uh you know, uh, Tawny Newsome, Paul F. Tompkins, the host of the Star Trek podcast. And this is <laughs> at the very start. And <laughs> this is before they had announced, uh, this is about two hours before they announced that they were returning for season three. So I just thought like whoever wrote the script just kind of looked up their Wikipedia entries and didn't really uh, find out more. So I don't know. I, I thought that was interesting. You, you also had um, Mary Chifo and um, uh, Jackie from RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, they were kind of hosting the red carpet there. I I thought it was kind of a sly burn when um, Chifo called uh, Kate Mulgrew's Janeway the best female captain ever. I guess, uh, I don't know, she doesn't say, seem to think the same thing about her co-star uh, one, Sneak with Martin Green. I, I kind of chuckled to myself about that. But I also wondered, uh, does Kate Mulgrew even know who Mary Chifo was when she was interviewing her? I think that's highly unlikely. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, oh, and you know, they interviewed Patrick Stewart, and this is, uh, so we're recording this, Cam, uh, the day after uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, has passed away, uh, our monarch, you know, here in Canada, um, and we, we have them uh, interviewing uh, uh, Patrick Stewart about that, and of course he has some nice words, but then he quickly jumps into the fact that, you know, this TN, or this uh, season three of Picard, it's not a reunion, it's an essential gathering, and so I'm just like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, sure. You know how there's like those buzzwords, like you know, they'll, for example, if you know a studio has a director attached, they'll put visionary or things yeah. like that. Like you'll have these buzzwords that pop up in terms of PR for movies and TV. I want essential gathering to be the new one. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Yeah, let's make yeah, it happen. Yeah. I guess we also found out during the Picard panel that uh, Rafi will be exploring the criminal underbelly of the galaxy. <laughs> They got my letters. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the stuff I, I don't want to hear from them. I'm just like, really? Like, okay. Yeah. Uh, um, 
I, I don't know about you, like, uh, how did you watch it? Like, I watched it through YouTube uh, after it aired. I wasn't watching it live. And, and the problem was for me, I was inundated with YouTube ads. I would, I swear, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It's like once every two to three minutes, a YouTube ad would pop up. So I was constantly yeah. skipping. It was just brutal for me. I mean, I did more of a skip around and watch bits of panels and okay. things like that. Okay. I, I did not commit to the full two plus hours. Um, and I was also at the same time just reading like Trek cores breakdowns and okay. watching all the, you know, the videos and things like that. So I wonder if you missed, uh, there was a funny Vegas story that, uh, that Tawny Newsom was recounting. Uh, and by Vegas, I'm talking about just the trip that you and I got back from uh, just the other week. In which she's standing at the front of uh, Bally's Casino where the uh, convention was with Jonathan Frakes and uh, one Gates McFadden. And somebody walks up to them and says, oh, did you hear there's like a Star Trek convention here? Frakes <laughs> says, uh, oh, cool. Uh, who's going to be there? Oh, uh, I bet everybody who's anybody's going to be there. Frank's like, oh, cool. Uh, what's your favorite Star Trek series? The Next Generation. Oh, isn't that nice? And the person just trots <laughs> away. <laughs> and I, was just like, I wish I was there to witness that. That would have been like quite amazing. That is amazing. Um, it, with some of the other like news that came out of this, though, we had Carol Kane announced as the new engineer on Strange New Worlds, which... I mean, for me personally, this was the most exciting news that came out of yesterday. Uh, I uh, agree, hundred percent. Yeah, it, it was a total like kind of swerve about what I expected. You know, in terms of casting the next engineer, I think they'd kind of baited Scotty a little bit, but also at the same time said we're not in that much of a hurry to do Scotty. I'm thankful for this. I think this is going to be much more interesting. And the character's name is it Pelia or Pelia? I uh, TBD. I think. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, they, you know, sum her up as highly educated and intelligent. This engineer suffers no fools. Pelia solves problems calmly and brusquely, thanks to her many years of experience. And when I read that, it actually kind of conjured up memories of, like, a Pulaski. And I would like to see, like, a Pulaski-type character done properly. Because I think that character, I actually do like the character of Pulaski. I'm not putting that character down at all. But, like the way she was wedged into TNG did her no favors, whereas I would like to actually see them do a character like that properly on Strange New Worlds. I like how they introduced her as, uh, or, or described her as highly intelligent, and, or uh, highly educated and intelligent, because, or, I don't know, it'd be great if she's like, they said, not educated and really stupid, she's the chief engineer of the Enterprise. I'm like, that would be interesting, that would be like a Packlid uh, becoming a chief engineer there, but uh, I just kind of hope that maybe they almost do a sort of... Um, you know, uh, Spinal Tap sort of version. You know how they always had like a new drummer in Spinal Tap? And I, I wonder if they would uh, do that with the Chief Engineer until we get to the Scotty era. Like that would be a little fun. Um, I joked about it in our WhatsApp group, but uh, maybe next season we get Gary Busey bringing a new vibe to uh, Star Trek. <laughs> and if they can even like bring in some characters who maybe pay off a little bit later down the road on TOS or something, that could be fun. And not like a Scotty, but like more of a minor character. I would be interested in that. But yeah, Carol Kane, obviously very long showbiz career and very distinct, like just her voice, but also just her kind of sensibilities as an actress. So it's something I'm very much looking forward to plugging into that show, which has a lot of a lot of kind of like you like youthful energy. And I think it'll be really interesting to have someone like her opposite like an Anson Mountain or Rebecca Romaine, more of the, like the the veteran showbiz people. Well, the other person I kind of compared her to is like Tignataro dropping in on uh discovery 
-hmm. and how she just brought kind of this different energy. And you brought up the word energy as well. And I'm also realizing, um, I think Gary Busey was recently accused of some sort of sexual misconduct sort of stuff. Uh I'm not. So to clarify, listeners, that's not the kind (laughs) of vibes I was suggesting. I was thinking more Gary Busey in kind of Cape Fear sort of uh, era. So just just to clarify that. uh, um, Anyway. Was he? Wait, wait. Was Gary Busey in Cape Fear? Oh, who am I thinking of? Uh, who's kind of the the private eye in Cape Fear? Oh or, my god! Or am I Nick thinking Nol- of the firm? No, Nick Nolte's the lead. I th- I think you're thinking maybe of the firm. I'm thinking of the firm with uh, Tom Cruise there. So, um, boom. Um, oh my Gary Busey! I, I I'm plugging him into Star Trek. <laughs> I'm plugging him into Cape Fear. Uh, there you go. I, I'm uh, I'm I'm confabulating my Gary Busey adoration there, and not for the things that he's been accused of. That's right. That's yes. right. Yes. Um, but. What, I mean, for me, a lot of what they released yesterday, I feel like in past years they had maybe a little more in the way of trailers, whereas we got a lot of clips of things. And, like, you know, getting a clip from an Ortegas episode coming up, like, fine. But out-of-context clips are the worst way to market to me personally. Maybe there's people out there that really dig watching these sneak peeks. To me, I'm just like... Whatever. Like there was a, you know, Lower Decks one where they're advertising a sequel to Crisis Point, you know, the episode from season one. I thought that was really spoilery. Like yeah. I just, I wish they didn't do that because I thought it was like, wait, like it really spoiled something quite big if you haven't seen the trailer, which is not, uh, like, that's why I'm not going to say anything. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, I enjoyed that episode in season one. I'm looking forward to a sequel. But like the clip, I was like, oh, why did I watch that? And then the Prodigy stuff, I mean, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> really on board with them bringing Okona back. I think that's amazing. <laughs> I am down. But like, I am so down for this. I almost would have preferred that they just announced Okona's coming back in a significant role, put out the character art, and don't give me this clip that is completely out of context. Yeah, yeah. Although the one thing I will appreciate is you had uh, this clip featured, you know, hologram Janeway cut between uh, real life Janeway and just how Mulgrew changes her voice in these kind of simple mm. ways. Like um, Admiral Janeway has kind of this uh, lower kind of deeper indentation within her voice versus kind of a younger sounding hologram Janeway. So it's just like, just being able to appreciate Kate Mulgrew and her acting choices there. And as we said um, a, a few weeks ago after Vegas, like there, there's nobody who can um, hold the audience uh, in the palm of her hands uh, like Mulgrew does. She just has kind of this way of, of you know, getting her grasp on people. And uh, so just more props to her. Lower Decks, uh, we also found out it's coming back October 27th to finish off um, its first season. Oh, uh, Prodigy. Oh, I'm Prodigy. sorry. Yes. I, I, yeah. Uh, Prodigy coming back. And so that's good news. But Kim, do you think we're just going to get five episodes and then they'll take another break around Christmas and then we come back in January for another five episodes and then we get like uh, Picard after that. Like that seems very possible to me. Well, the way they worded it gave the impression it would be 10 episodes, but this is prodigy we're talking yep. about. So yeah. it wouldn't be prodigy if you didn't have a huge gap between five episodes. Yeah. Well, uh, look, I, I'm, I'm pumped for prodigy. I spoiler alert uh, for the rest of this episode. I I'm looking forward to lower decks as well. Uh, the uh, Cam did the set tour that Wilson Cruz provided of uh, Discovery. Did that get you um, really energized uh, for what comes next in uh, Discovery? No, I mean my only takeaway was Mary Wiseman is on set. Uh, that was a character, you know, Tilly. We had no idea what was going on with Tilly in season four, so it seems Mary Wiseman's back. So there you go. Kim, uh, my guess is uh, she's back because they maybe aren't going to proceed with uh, 
Starfleet Academy in the 31st century. Hmm. Possibly as well, yeah. Well, okay. It's it's possible, but do you think it's likely? I would think if I'm the execs and I watch that episode with Tilly, I go, this might not be a show. <laughs> yeah. And it's not because we dislike Tilly. Like, we like Tilly. It's just we watched that, I guess, I, I don't know if it was supposed to be a backdoor pilot or what, but I think it was episode four of uh, yeah. season four of Discovery. It featured her, you know, mentoring cadets. And it was a terrible, terrible episode. My hope is that the person they had, you know, or have um, attached to, you know, fleshing out Starfleet Academy was like, that's, I'm more interested in doing something maybe in whatever, the the current timeline of Star Trek versus the Discovery era, and that maybe there's going to re-envision what this show is. I, I don't know if it's going to happen. Like, we haven't gotten any news about an official you know, shooting date or anything or casting or anything like that. So who knows? It could be like the section 31 where it just floats around for a while. But like, if it is going to happen, it does not make any sense to be doing it as a discovery spinoff. I don't think. No. The other thing that you and I were talking about a couple weeks ago is whether or not they would use Star Trek day to announce yet another live action series. And Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't get word of that. And I would figure the most likely things that they would have announced would either be Starfleet Academy or some sort of Giorgio spinoff. I, I'm not convinced it's necessarily got to be a Section 31 spinoff. I just, I just wonder if that was kind of, kind of a not a buzzword, but just uh, like an easy conceit uh, to sell audiences uh, in the get-go. But really what they want to do is just tell the story of what comes next for Giorgio. I-, I have no interest in seeing her in Section 31, but why give up on a talent like Michelle Yeoh? The problem is I- she keeps signing up for a new television series uh, to star in in the leading roles. Like I-, I think she's signed on for like two series right now. I don't know how she fits in like um, some sort of spinoff anytime soon. Michelle Yeoh is also currently, you know, who, who knows how this could shake out in the fall, but Probably the front runner to win the Oscar for Best Actress at this point in time. Yes. If she wins Best Actress, she's not doing a Star Trek series. I, I would be shocked. I, shocked. Well, I don't know. It's tough because you can point to a lot of uh, performers that have won uh, Best Actor, Best Actress awards. And um, I, I don't <laughs> know. Did, did Cuba Gooding Jr.'s career really take off? You know, like, yeah, that's true. It, 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 and there's countless other like examples of that. And, you know, like you and I were discussing just the weird career that Christoph Waltz has had uh, after coming off those two Oscar wins, you know, so it's just kind of like some people might just be happy to have kind of a consistent job doing a role in the form of a character that they really adore. So I, 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 I'm not saying it's out of the question, but she is in terms of um, actresses that are in high demand right now. She is up yeah. there with the best of them. And and we're talking yeah. about a woman who's in her 50s. This is not really common. And and that's why I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that there could still be like a good, you know, seven of nine spinoff in the works. You know, again, like I, I hate to say it, but Hollywood is terrible. And women in their 50s typically don't get to lead uh, dramatic television series. And so, I don't know, give that to uh, Jerry Ryan, give that offer to her. I'm sure she would jump all over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no kidding. So, um, was there anything else, just maybe to wrap up Star Trek Day, that was uh, notable for you? Uh, yeah, seeing Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, with uh, <laughs> with Bob Picardo on the red carpet. That that was interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, you know what? Uh, the the uh, 
Con, City Alpha 5 podcast. That's uh, right. They are going to be reconstituting those scripts that were meant for television that Nicholas Meyer, the director of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, he wrote those years ago. And for whatever reason, he said it was out of his control and out of Alex Kurtzman's control, the executive producer of all these Star Trek shows. And so he's now going to rewrite the scripts, put them in podcast form. There's supposed to be three one-hour episodes, and it's going to focus solely on what happened in between um, Space Seed and The Wrath of Khan. I think that would have been fascinating. I think you essentially would have ended episode one with, you know, that uh, cataclysmic event that, you know, shoved SETI Alpha 5 out of its orbit and turned that planet into a very hostile place. Um, I would have preferred if that was realized on screen but i think you might be able to kind of um avoid some of the hang-ups there like how do you recast um ricardo montalban and i and i don't mean by hiring (laughs) benedict cumberbatch but it's like if you hear an actor take on the voice of ricardo montalban i think that's much easier prospect than somebody who has to um recreate his gravity and his physicality in, in a certain way too so i i this is i don't really listen to fictional podcasts i'm more of kind of the nonfiction um sort of person and i i, I will definitely tune in for this i'm very curious what what they will uh, conjure up here yeah i'll listen to this as well because i mean if nicholas Meyer's involved i'm genuinely interested because he was attached to do some sort of con project for a while that just never really happened and he's clearly passionate about the character. So to me, this is more interesting than, you know, maybe if just, you know, random Star Trek novel writer was writing a fictional <laughs> con yeah. um, podcast. That wouldn't interest me as much. But because it's Nicholas Meyer, it's a must listen. Well, I also wonder, like a lot of podcasts, uh, fictional podcasts, uh, they are uh, gone, uh, have gone ahead and been uh, adapted into television shows as well. So I just yeah. wonder if this is kind of a, a bit of a uh, an audition for something that could eventually materialize on screen somehow. I don't know. It, I, it seems a little like uh, ass backwards in how they're going about doing it. But look, I, I, I'm down to witness whatever unfolds here. I mean, if Okona can <laughs> return as a character on a Star Trek show in 2022 then I think there is room for Khan to come back in some way on uh, Paramount+. Plus. Alrighty, sir. Well, we're halfway through uh, our latest subspace episode, and we have yet to talk about uh, Lower Decks, uh, the season three premiere Grounded. We're also going to talk about episodes two and three, of course, uh, The Least Dangerous Game, and Cam, the best uh, episode title we've ever seen in all of Star Trek, Mining the Mines minds you know and um <laughs> but uh i i, I want to say uh i think season one season two of uh, of lower decks the premieres were not the strongest episodes and i have to hand it to them i thought grounded was an excellent episode i watched it uh, once in vegas with you and all our friends um it was great to have that communal atmosphere but i rewatched it again Wanted to take some notes, and I also wanted to see if that episode held up or if it was just kind of like being in that room laughing with people that may have swayed me. I think this is the, far and away the best premiere that they've done yet. Uh, strongest episode so far in season three, two, in my opinion. And so, I don't know, that, that's my basic uh, 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 jump at it right there. But I, I should just add, for those that don't recall, this is where essentially the crew is trying to prove the innocence of one uh, Carol Freeman after she was framed by the Pakleds for blowing up the uh, capital city of Planet Paklet. 
And I thought this episode was so much fun. And it really got to the core of what Lower Decks is about because you have, you know, Mariner wanting to free her mom and we get this kind of haphazard mission with the, uh, the you know, the, the Lower Decks people to save her. But ultimately, they are completely useless in resolving the problem because the Starfleet system ultimately works yeah. in favor of freeing Captain Freeman. And so not only do we get kind of this emphasis on how much power the Lower Decks really have in terms of the goings-ons of you know Starfleet um, activity, but also you get really great character stuff with Mariner. And I really like that moment where she has like the breakdown when Rutherford shuts down the Cerritos when she's trying to take off with it, and she like talks about how scared she is. And you get this like sense that Mariner's someone who likes to be combated with her mother, but like it's that structure that she really clings to, and when that's taken away, you see how she can become really reckless and dangerous to herself. So like this was not only like a really good character episode, but it was also very funny and also really highlighted the concept of the series. It was like a real home run, I think, for Lower Decks. Well, that moment you mentioned, it felt earned it felt organic mm -hmm. to the character where i think a lot of our complaints around say discovery or picard it's like yeah we like the characters but so much of the moments that kind of unfolds very very inorganic and very very just kind of shoved in there and just does not feel natural there does not feel earned especially and so the fact that they're doing this with a character that has been in a total of at this point 21 half hour episodes cam this would be like um not even halfway through season one of star trek the next generation just in terms of uh hours produced at this point and it's amazing that you're able to make you feel like so emotionally invested in character who as you said was very combative and I think very polarizing for many folks early on, but uh, I don't know I, I'm just really digging what they're uh, doing with the character, and um, yeah, th this is just a very strong premiere. Um, some of the funny stuff if we're talking about Boimler is going to his vineyard where it's a raisin vineyard. <laughs> it's not, it's not about wine, as we may have assumed, and all those hotties who have the hots for Boims. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the best line was i'm soaked in juice and i need help getting naked and he's like spray it off with a hose louise <laughs> it's just like, i mean that stuff is hilarious to me like just how clueless he was i mean this episode just had so many great comedic conceits i mean obviously the raisin farm is glorious and the way they like introduce him or reintroduce him on the show of like in kind of like the like kind of the silhouette almost of like the uh the kind of the statuesque Picard on the vineyard look. And then it's like this really sad raisin farm <laughs> that he's just like annoyed to be at. But also just like revisiting, you know, historical Bozeman yeah. in Montana. And, you know, you get James Cromwell coming on board to do kind of like a Disneyland ride-like character. Um, all of that stuff was so much fun in terms of reinventing a place we've seen and know very well from First Contact, but doing it in a way that felt like rediscovering it for the first time. I like Cromwell's line as uh, Zephyrin Cochran. He uh, he was like, make your first contact with fun. <laughs> and it's just like, th th those are like the silly throwaway lines that I really dig. And uh, them, you know, playing the first contact theme by Jerry Goldsmith, you know, that, that so those are kind of the references, you know, I kind of complained about it with regards to our season two review, how some of the jokes were just like, just making references and we're supposed to laugh because we're like, oh, I get that reference, uh, similar to Captain America in, I, I think it was Civil War. But it's like when you're playing the music from First Contact, that can have 
an emotional impact on me as a viewer very familiar with it, but if you are somebody who's new to this and it doesn't necessarily resonate, it's still just a good musical piece to listen into and make you feel as if you're immersed in this uh, th this historic, profound town here. And then even when you have like Mariners <laughs> just pointing out, hey, that's that famous one song jukebox. Because <laughs> <just> like... <laughs> I remember he kept playing the Ubi Doobie uh, <laughs> during, um, uh, uh, Co Cochrane kept playing it during First Contact, which is great. And we even got uh, Magic Carpet Ride uh, by mm -hmm. Steppenwolf for an extended period. And so, I don't know, just those are the kinds of moments where there are the kind of more throwaway lines that I dig way more than the setup, setup, punchline sort of stuff. Well, you know when you see, like, a really good episode of The Simpsons where the family goes on, like, a trip to, you know, a comic convention or something like that at the start of an episode? Usually that's pretty common first-act Simpsons stuff. And, like, this delivered in that sort of way, where it was just, like, funny little insights that made you feel like you were really, like, kind of basking in this kind of goofy environment. And it left you with a takeaway. Like, it'll stick with me, like, its interpretation of historical Bozeman. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another line that cracked me up. Uh, Are we dressed okay for court? And then Rutherford replies, I mean, my shirt could be a little bit more asymmetrical. And it's just like a commentary on kind of the uh, uh, that era of uh, civilian clothing. We got to pop by Cisco's Creole Restaurant as well, and when there's some um, Ketrasol white hot sauce there as well. And and okay, let me ask you this: that shuttle bay crash, you know, was that maybe the scene director Shatner always wanted for the Final Frontier? You know, we we know what ended up on screen, but do you think it's it, like Lord Dex is kind of in a position? to kind of quote unquote fix certain things from the franchise that just budgetary reasons, you know, pen to paper, much cheaper than having to film something like live action or with CG effects. I think that's, yeah, a really good statement there because yeah, like the limitations of what they could do with effects, especially in the older movies, you know, they had to work with what they could and the budget kept getting cut on Star Trek five and Shatner. I don't know that he was the world's greatest effects director, but yeah, like I think like lower decks is able to take these conceits and realize them in a way where even on a new live action Star Trek show, sometimes the CG can look kind of glaring or kind of, you know, fake. Whereas on lower decks, because it, the whole world is animated, they can really pull off sequences like this and it's all going to blend very, very well. Yeah, you can pull off sequences like bringing um, one Captain Morgan Bateson as played by Kelsey Grammer back in the day. Uh, he was back, uh, I guess, in the still photography form here. He kind of saved the day for Carol Freeman. That was great. Uh, okay, so here's something. Uh, I'm going to bring this into the sighting of Commander Tuvok in his first contact era uniform. Yeah. When we saw Tom Paris, Tom Paris is wearing a Voyager era uniform. And I was const I was very confused about like, What's going on with the uniform situation here? Like, here's how I rationalize it. Anybody who's serving on a California-class starship, they're the ones that are wearing the lower decks uniforms. If it's another starship, you know, uh, like the USS Titan, uh, then you're wearing a first contact era uniform. But then recall the episode where you had the USS Vancouver. Were they not wearing, like, uh, lower decks uniforms? Or am I misremembering that? Oh boy, I'd have to because that's a the Parliament tape. class starship. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe one of us can uh, <laughs> take a look at what uh, Google Images shows. But uh, the other thing that that I want to point out, though, is you recall the transporter chief, uh, that old man offering uh, butterscotch. Uh, I, I think his name is Denny. 
yep. he was wearing a uh, a Voyager era uniform. And meanwhile, uh, Mariner's Admiral Father, he's wearing a lower decks version of the Admiral's uniform, whereas the uh, friend, the Admiral friend, is wearing a first contact version. And it's just like, it, it's incredibly confusing for me. Like, I, I just, I, I don't know how they pick one or the other any given episode. I don't know. Like, they used to be pretty consistent with uniforms on the old shows, and it's probably because they had such a limited number of uniforms and they didn't have the money. Yes. But, like, now, even with, like, Discovery, um, you know, season uh, two, when they introduced Pike and everything, it, it got kind of confusing as to why, you know, you've got the Discovery uniforms and then the, uh, you know, the Constitution class uniforms. Um, I just think it's almost like that embarrassment of riches. You know how, like, once uh, Star Wars got relaunched by Disney suddenly you had like a billion different types of stormtroopers and right. all the different colors. It's right. like they could do anything they wanted. I feel like that's kind of happening with Star Trek with the uniforms. It's like they want to constantly come up with new uniform concepts because they're interesting to look at. But the logic of it gets very confusing. And, oh, I, so I double-checked. And uh, the USS Vancouver crew, which are on a Parliament-class starship, they were wearing lower decks uniforms. So I, I don't quite know the rhyme or reason for why some folks in this era are wearing lower decks uniforms versus first contact uniforms versus voyager uniforms it's just like this mishmash and look um look if, if it just comes down to the creators like having different uniforms around um hey more power to them look we, we've seen a mix of uniforms throughout all of star trek's run so this is not something that's going to bug me it's just more something that I'm gonna um, uh, rub my chin and wonder about, especially watching um, with uh, Star Trek Picard, in which there are new Starfleet uniforms every single season, including season three. Yeah, and we got two versions of uniforms in season one because we had those flashbacks as well. So it really is all over the place. We, we've got um, Star Trek Pro Prodigy with different kinds of uniforms. Uh, so i don't know I, I i'm not gonna sweat over it i i just thought it was something kind of curious and i couldn't quite uh figure out what the uh the intent was there i can kind of buy with the tom paris one that he was on this like promotional handshake tour that they would want to put him in a uniform that is identifiable for his best known adventures for this kind of promotional tour uh so i think that maybe be it as well as just visually trying to communicate to the audience tom paris from voyager um, so that one I can kind of wrap my head around, but some of the other varieties, I just, I don't know anymore. I, <laughs> it's exactly. just confusing. Um, so uh, one final thought on Grounded is, uh, the role of Ransom moving forward. You and I were questioning, uh, during our season two review a few weeks ago, like what is going to be the dynamic between Mariner and Freeman going forward? Like, do we risk just repeating the same beats again and again? I like the fact that like Freeman is just washing her hands of it and saying, look, I'm going to put it under, uh, uh, I'll make it up to Ransom to decide where you go from here. Are you going to stick around in Starfleet? I think that's great. Um, it makes, you know, uh, Ransom's character that much more kind of uh, a utilitarian player. I think he struggled mm -hmm. um, uh, in season one. He came around a lot more in season two giving him more stuff to do you know like him exclaiming uh welcome home mariner i'm your mama now i mean that got a legit <laughs> laugh out of me so i'm looking forward to more of the uh the mariner and ransom dynamic and, and we did see that in the um uh the, the first two or the next two episodes to follow as well 
and I'm looking forward to having Mariner spend more time with him because it can kind of reveal more of the weirdness about him on a personal level while also we get to showcase how he's good at his job because that's something I felt like in season one they were kind of dropping the ball on is it made no sense why he would be the first officer he seemed like a complete idiot and in season two we saw a lot more scenes of him connecting with Boimler and showing that he was actually a very capable first officer and mentor figure so I'm looking forward to kind of like with Riker Riker's a complete lunatic but like as a first officer like almost second to none and so like I'm looking forward to having that kind of um reveal with that character through the eyes of Mariner through the season um there was one other thing I want to just mention about this episode in the opening news crawl there was a mention of a stampede at a Sonny Clemens concert yeah did you do you know who Sonny Clemens is I I don't but I I wrote it down in my notes though but like uh, what do you make of that he was the country singer that they thought out in the episode The Neutral Zone <laughs> in TNG. <laughs> that is amazing. That is that is one of the best like uh, Easter eggs you could ever imagine. Yeah, I was overjoyed when I uh, Googled that one. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, why don't we jump over to the least dangerous game in which, uh, well, uh, Boimler agrees to be hunted. Yeah, it's kind of like that episode of uh, Seinfeld where uh, George uh, was was that he was saying yes to everything, I think, or was it that he was yeah. opposite George? Oh, no, it was more yeah, um, going the exact opposite of all of his instincts. Yes. And so here, Boimler's just saying yes to everything. So he agrees to be hunted. Uh, but the episode kicks off with them playing the uh, 24th century equivalent of a VHS game, uh, one starring a Klingon, uh, one known mm-hmm. as uh, J.G. Hertzler reprising his, well, a, a knockoff version of Martok. But Cam, what was the name of the um, the VHS game that you and I played with Fallen co-host Benjamin Young. Uh, it, it starred Robert O'Reilly as uh, some knockoff of uh, Gowron, which is, it, it's kind of hilarious how they're kind of doing these parallels here. Yeah, he played Captain Kavik, and I think the game was called Klingon Encounter? Something was like that? that. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. But it, it's actually a legit fun game. Like, uh, we, mm-hmm. like... I would recommend it to anybody. You can find like a YouTube video. You don't need a VHS tape. And then if you can get the board, you're set. And uh, honestly, it's, it's worth having, uh, what, it takes maybe an hour, hour and a half tops to play. It's a lot of fun if you're there with Star Trek fans. Yeah, I mean, there was that whole era of VHS um, board games because there was also Nightmare, which I was a big fan of. And I think they're all about an hour. They have a timer usually for about an hour on your screen. So, yeah, like uh, that Captain Kavik character, we had a blast with him barking experience beige at us over and over again. Um, And, uh, yeah, that game is held up well. So I encourage people to check it out. And I was delighted to see them pay tribute to it and kind of, you know, jab at it a little bit with having Martok host this other version of it (laughs) on the show. I mean, it's that's the kind of joke that is really good because people that have played that VHS board game instantly get this joke the deeper you know layers of this joke but if you'd never played that game and don't even know what it is it's still funny having a Klingon character bark at people on like a video you know board game yeah so the episode goes from there and they are talking about their old ensign comrade Vendome uh you know we probably remember him best from uh season one but he's gone from ensign to captain after the captain of his last starship uh hit a temporal rift and 
turned into a baby, which I thought was uh, hilarious. <laughs> but uh, so that's why essentially uh, Boimler is agreeing to say yes to everything right now. And he gets in the situation with uh, uh, one alien known as Cranch. He's a Hirogen-esque sort of uh, alien there. And uh, uh, I, I kind of like the conceit in that like, uh, you know, much like uh, how you would uh, go fishing and you would, uh, you know, lure the fish in and throw them back into the uh, into the lake or what have you. Uh, that's essentially what Cranch is doing here. Um, yeah, it, it kind of worked for me. Um, this one didn't quite get as many laughs uh, from me, but it was interesting. Even just seeing the dynamic between uh, Mariner and Ransom continue, it wasn't like they just forgot about it after one episode. Those two are assigned to do essentially engineer duties on an orbital lift cam, not an elevator, an orbital lift. And yep. meanwhile, um, uh, Billups and uh, Rutherford are down doing quote-unquote diplomatic duties on the planets, uh, a, a very horny planet at that. And uh, <laughs> that's why uh, one of them, uh, I, I Ransom makes reference to Billups saying like, well, you wouldn't want you to accidentally become a king down there, which of course is a reference <laughs> to that last season episode where it, it, it's revealed that if he loses his virginity, he becomes king of his mother's uh, monarchy there. I thought that was a really funny um, Star Trek riff, too, to do kind of the uh, the horny planet thing, which we've seen, obviously, with uh, Ryza. But also, I think of the episode The Apple from the original series. And it looked like the characters, you know, the aliens were modeled a little bit on the Apple characters. And just like the way that they built that up of, like, kind of the, the temptation that Mariner would desperately want to go on this mission and to constantly have those characters checking back in tempting like and frustrating mariner more and more as she was dealing with um you know ransom i thought that was just comedically very funny and as the situation spiraled out of control with them basically on the run for not revealing their navels during a ceremony <laughs> like all of that comedically worked but it also just worked so well with the character of mariner because you could just like psychologically you could understand how it would just gnaw away at mariner and you know, we got a great joke off the orbital platform jump, like the 2009 <laughs> Star Trek, that then resulted into having to climb up massive amounts of stairs. Like, I thought this episode was a step down from the first episode, but, like, in terms of consistency, pretty solid. Like, it's a, you know, slight step down, but it's still a good episode. I totally agree. And it doesn't seem as if they're falling into that trap of having so many storylines going on in that to the point you kind of get confused or you kind of disassociate and because it's hard to follow everything that's going on they, they had three different storylines going on essentially you know the cranch stuff on the ship in which boimler is being hunted the uh, mariner ransom stuff going on the orbital platform and then uh, to a much lesser degree you had the uh, rutherford and uh, billups stuff going on in the plan i think that's just kind of a perfect way to balance those a b and c stories throughout and they also weren't, like, none of those stories were driven by just sort of the uh, randomness that'll sometimes happen on Lower Decks when it feels like it's getting a little shaky with its storytelling. Like, the famous example I think I'll be referring to from this point forward will be Tendi Scorpion yeah. in Season 2, where it's like that had nothing really to do with what the overall story of that episode was. It was thrown in to create, you know, a chaotic situation at the end. This episode didn't do that. The previous episode didn't do that. The way they dealt with Cranch, I thought, was really well done because it tied into Boimler's journey through the episode. I, I really did enjoy watching him do um, Bajoran um, dirges. Oh, the dirge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. playing Spring Ball, of course, Vedic Brile's favorite game. Um, so, like, 
the way that they could like make that feel organic and still kind of get in their kind of action based, um, you know, third act kind of sequence with uh, Cranch, I thought worked really well and felt organic, not yeah. unearned. Uh, one of my big laughs, uh, just as we close out this episode, uh, was Cranch taking the selfie pic with Boimler after he hunted him. Uh, yeah. That was good. It very much kind of a commentary on uh, uh, the, the social media era that we're living in now. I did enjoy as well that the uh, the Delaney aliens were ruled by both a sentient volcano and like a uh, <laughs> psychic baby. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay, Cam, jumping on to episode three of season three, uh, Mining the Mines Mines. Uh, think about that, people. There, there, there's so many ways to interpret that. But, uh, of course, we know that Star Trek is obsessed with mining. I'm glad <laughs> that we're getting more acknowledgement, even more. But essentially, this one has to do with some sort of kind of diplomatic mission going on the USS Cerritos, in which we have Tendi kind of uh, getting uh, a lot of uh, mentorship from Dr. Uh, Milamo, uh, <laughs> the uh, ship uh, counselor, and she gets to kind of shadow Freeman on this dop- diplomatic mission for a little bit. And it all ties back to this kind of um, rock planet in which uh, the inhabitants uh, are using these sorts of orbs to uh, dig into people's minds. And that can be everything from nightmares uh, that feature... Um, Klingon clowns with batlets for <laughs> hands, which was hilarious. To yeah. um, uh, one uh, Jen the Andorian, um, you know, calling a uh, mariner, "Hey, babe, uh, <laughs> you know, you want to be like uh, more than just you know, like uh, friends or something like that." Like, which seeing mariner so vulnerable and incredibly embarrassed that uh, it's been revealed that she's been like uh, daydreaming about Jen the Andorian as uh her uh her girlfriend like just watching her go red like that was like kind of amazing moment i love like vulnerable uh mariner as well like we mentioned in uh, episode one we're seeing this here and i I just like how they're able to pluck a few other strings on this character than what we're getting you know maybe at the start of the series where she had very much that kind of steel exterior well the beauty of this uh concept was that it reveals the character's fantasies which a can be really funny but B, show insight into the characters. So, like, you're right. Like, seeing Mariner embarrassed in that situation, it was very funny. But it was also, like, an earned character moment. And then, like, the other two were just, like... I mean, Boimler with the Admiral with the sidecar <laughs> pulling up was amazing. Like, what an amazing visual gag. But then also we had Rutherford um, <laughs> encountering Leah Brahms. Uh, yeah. Re-voiced, voiced by Susan Gibney coming back to the franchise. Um, I mean, that's clearly, you know, an in-joke given Jordy's uh, background on TNG. But I thought this was also very funny and tied into the way that, like, Rutherford interprets everything through technology the way that Jordy did. Yeah. And, like, uh, Rutherford saying, oh, Think of Parisi Squares. Think of Parisi Squares. Like, those are the kinds of lines. But what do you think Susan Gibney was thinking in, like, her her first time back in the franchise in, in decades? They're like, okay, we need you to be, once again, a fantasy version of yourself in which you were being ogled over by uh, an, an engineer. Like, I, I, she's like, eh, okay, I'll take the paycheck. Yeah. Um, I would have to assume they pitched it more as we want to um, kind of satirize the way your character was portrayed on TNG. Like, this is a knowing uh, version of this yeah. versus an we're unknowing version. Fun. Yeah. We're, we're we're having fun, not making fun. Yes. Um, because, like, I, the thing with that TNG episode, Galaxy's Child, it's completely not self-aware. 
about how weird that is. Whereas Lower Decks is very aware of kind of the weirdness of this scenario. Do you think it's likely that uh, Dr. Brahms makes an appearance in season three of Picard? Um, the, the assumption here, and, and I think uh, one LeVar Burton's kind of already spilled the beans, but um, that, that he and Leah Brahms eventually got married. Yeah, wasn't that uh, in an earlier version of the script for Nemesis or something at the wedding? Yeah, and it was also yeah. referenced in All Good Things in that alt-reality there. It, it is... It is a little weird in that, like, Jordy always had that fantasy, and, and she was a married woman at the time, so it's like, I don't know, it, it's like, he gets his fantasy to come true, and she's divorced. There's nothing wrong with getting divorced or whatever, it's, it's just kind of like, it, it just seems like a bit of a leap, and um, kind of having your cake and eating it too. Well, it's also just kind of rewarding Jordy's behavior yes. <laughs> in that episode, which, look, yeah. uh, you know, the episode's written in 1991. Who knows what's going on in the water at that point? But, like, it, it doesn't play the same now. And to have that character kind of rewarded for that is, in 2022, a little weird. Yeah, yeah. But, um, look, if she's back for uh, an appearance in live action, I'm, I think that's cool. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. curious how that dynamic is going to work between those two characters. Does Leah Brahms know, uh, say, Agnes Gerardi, for example? Well, those are kinds of things that I'd, I'd be curious about. <laughs> that has kept me up at night. Does she know both, Agnes Gerardi? <laughs> they both work at the Daystrom Institute, sir. Come on. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. Do you think like Do you think Agnes has kept in touch with her since she became the board queen? <laughs> yeah, they're they're always talking about uh, B four. You know, keeping him, mm. uh, you know, uh, neat and tidy in that drawer that uh, right. he's been in. You know, so um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a little bit of soon talk. I can only imagine that they've Fair met enough. some uh, some soon iteratives in their lives. So there you go. Okay. Uh, my fa- my second favorite cameo behind Leah Brahms was the return of the Mayan Dragon uh, God character from the uh, original animated series episode "How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth," which was that like very colorful um, dragon that was chasing them initially when the nightmares started. I was overjoyed when that appeared on screen. I did not catch that reference. So boom. Uh, they are look if they have like one Sunny Clemens. Uh, concert shout-outs, then, uh, look, th- this just seems totally obvious. You have to go with, like, something like this uh, with regards to uh, uh, the animated series. Yeah, and I have loved how Lower Decks has continued to work in the, you know, the artistic um, stylings and characters and, al- and aliens from the animated series, because that was always the frustrating thing for me as someone who does enjoy the original animated series was it didn't translate to live action, so it kind of yeah. exists on an island, where there's some really cool designs and characters that never really could go anywhere because they didn't make sense in an original series movie or a TNG episode or anything like that. So I love like that Lower Decks Bem, has given for this... example. Bam is a great example, yeah. And so it's like Lower Decks has given that little island, you know, a place to go. So it, it's kind of like now we can continue to explore some of the alien species and stuff like that, like Sherry Yem Yem, yeah, showing up, as you said, with Bam, <laughs> you know, um, last season. Yeah. Uh, so if I want to critique this one a little bit, um, it, it had a, a bit of a, a very special episode kind of vibe. And like you learn the lesson at the end in which the other uh, California class Ensign crew members, they're yeah. secretly jealous 
of the uh, the Cerritos adventures that have been going on, and they're the ones that were rushing through this uh, cleanup job. And it's really because they think of this uh, Cerritos crew as like the rock stars here. Um, I was just like, okay, like sure, like it just it just felt like I, I was watching Full House at a certain point. Uh, although the very end when they're like. And Boimler, we always just pictured you as some sort of hovering cube. Like, like. <laughs> yeah, that was like a great button to that. But I agree with you. Like that aspect of the episode was, I thought, the weakest part. Because it wasn't even really that funny when they yeah. were in competition with one another. It's like, okay, let's lift rocks faster. I'm like, uh, this isn't like comedic genius here. So they weren't really making that work for them. To me, I just thought it was more fun in terms of, you know, cracking the conspiracy that was going on um, with, you know, these mind-altering rocks. And, uh, you know, the fact that it was these, like, rock beings teaming up with the, um, you know, the colonists or the scientists there um, to, you know, put one over on the Cerritos. Like, I thought that was more interesting than the competition. Well, I like how Freeman explained it at the end. It's like, yeah, the scientists wanted to get all this top secret information and the rock aliens, they wanted more rocks. <laughs> like she was just like, <laughs> she didn't even understand the motivation, which uh, uh, that was pretty funny. Yeah, like it was a it was a really solid gag and a fun way to end it. I, I just wish they'd found maybe a funnier, yeah. like something funnier for like the two ships to like kind of butt heads over. Because yeah. it's okay if it's like, you know, envy or something but like build something funnier around it other than who can work faster yeah uh look camp i would say uh you and i were a little bit more mixed on the first three episodes of season two of lower decks i think in season one we were still trying to you know see what the show was trying to strike in terms of tone and rhythm um, it was also repeating itself in season one a lot like every episode for the first couple was like the ship getting taken over yeah, it's just alien invasions. And it's just like, oh, yeah. okay. Um, I would say um, they are off to kind of that momentum that I think we had been hoping for when season one concluded. We, we thought that would carry on into the uh, second season. And it, it took, I think, like six or seven episodes to really get going. Um, I, I, I think this is the most consistent uh, start to any season that we've gotten from Lower Deck so far. Yeah, uh, I can't disagree with that. I'm really hoping they can maintain this level of quality and like the way i look at like these first three grounded's my favorite of the three but we're not at like no small parts level you know the finale of season one like lower decks can get hit higher and so i'm hoping this is kind of our you know kind of our bedrock and we can build from here and have some really standout episodes because if this is like the consistency level of you know your average good episode of the season that is a great place to be yeah Okay. Uh, well, Cam, if I can, like, jump over to a, a bit of a different topic that I am going to, like, make it come back to Star Trek in a different way. You know, we've done, like, reviews of, like, sci-fi properties. Like, remember um, the Ortonville reports, you know, when uh, the Orville season one was going? We also turned that into the Cam DeLorton report when you have episodes of Mandalorian. Uh, we've tried uh, really terrible puns with... I. Do we even call these puns when we're talking about our uh, names for the Boba Fett reviews and the Obi-Wan reviews? Uh, we'll be doing the uh, the Cam Dorton, uh, I guess, <laughs> reviews when Andor uh, premieres in a few weeks. Um, but I want to take it to more of the fantasy realm. And I, I don't plan on talking about uh, 
the House of the Dragon and uh, Rings of Power, uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, series, um, week to week. I, I want to bring this back, though, because uh, I think it does relate to Star Trek. I was listening to a podcast, one of my favorite pop culture podcasts, uh, The Watch. And one of the hosts, I believe is Andy Greenwald, he described how he had a situation in which there was a pilot that was filmed for their first spinoff for uh, Game of Thrones. And this was going to be The Long Night. S.J. Clarkson actually directed that. Uh, she was, of course, the one who was later tied to a uh, Star Trek film. Uh, uh, one of the ongoing like um, directors involved uh, with Star Trek that has gone out the door since then. But um, from what I understand, it was a series that was trying to kind of reinvent Game of Thrones to a certain degree. And what we get with House of the Dragon, which were three episodes in, it airs every Sunday, and Andy Greenwald described it best. He was just like, it's Game of Thrones for the sake of being Game of Thrones. It's You're in a familiar universe, familiar cinematography, um, editing, uh, you know, uh, just uh, costuming. It feels like you're in kind of that same universe. And we got that very much, you know, during that Berman era where there's kind of this consistency throughout. And then we jump forward, we leap forward with Discovery, Picard, and we really get the sense, you know, like we ain't, you know, daddy's Star Trek all the time. And uh, I think the most praise that any Star Trek series has gotten in this Kurtzman era is from Strange New Worlds, where it really feels as if you're it's Star Trek for the sake of Star Trek. And, and I hope there might be a lesson learned from, you know, Kurtzman when it comes to future, you know, live action series. Yeah, and I mean, I guess you could say the same for Lower Decks in that it feels in terms of like the way it looks and sort of the storytelling a little bit like TNG and that sort of um, um, Berman era as well. But like, it is this weird like um, tendency of creators, you know, when they get hold of these franchises that like we need to shake it up. And as you said, it's not your daddy's fill in the blank. And I don't think that's necessary, especially when you look at something like Star Wars where they went away with that, you know, with the prequels and it was like, there was a very clear desire to pull it back to that because it didn't feel like what people like from star Wars. I think that's the case with star Trek as well. And so you're saying like the new, um, house of the dragon feels like game of Thrones, right? Yes, exactly. And it's not as if like, Oh, this is just being repetitive. I can't believe that they haven't come up with something like interesting. It is an interesting story. You you you've got like Matt Smith chewing the scenery like nonstop. You've got a host of great characters um like bouncing off of each other. It's like like I'm enjoying this show, and it's not as if it has to kind of uh, like reinvent the wheel here. It's one of my frustrations with Picard is that like I mean storytelling aside, and I'm willing to look past this element, but like it doesn't look or feel like it exists within the world of the Star Trek I previously watched Picard in. It feels like they kind of reinvented the franchise, pop that character in, and I'm supposed to just ride along, whereas it visually doesn't feel at all like TNG or even the TNG movies. The sheer effing hubris when you can <laughs> to, to say something yeah. like that. Um, I, I don't hold that against the show necessarily. I'm willing to just go, okay, fine, get over yourself, Cam, but nonetheless. Well, let me, let me maybe a better comparison for Game of Thrones versus uh, House of the Dragon might be uh, Breaking Bad versus Better Call Saul, where it's mm. distinct yet familiar. Like you can tell yeah. you're in the same universe, but you are doing distinct things within that universe. Uh, even like storytelling wise, you know, um, 
both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul are very process-driven shows, and, and they visualize that in a way that you don't really see in like television or cinema. Uh, very unique. But um, you're doing different things on uh, both shows, and, and even when you're in the same universe. Um, and so I, I'm going to briefly just touch on Rings of Power uh, very, very uh, just briefly here. Um, in that, Kim, have you watched it or given any of the uh, three episodes a, a gander at this point? I am going to watch it. I didn't have time this this past week to, but I am going to quickly catch up. The only thing I I, I want to say, and how it relates to Star Trek, is Cam. I haven't seen anything so visually spectacular on on television or in blockbuster cinema in a long time. I was I was just like gobsmacked by how beautiful this looks, and based on the trailers that, or I should say, the first trailer that came out. I just kind of shrugged. I was like, uh, and I also was very worried. It's like, is this going to be like a self-important show? I, I, I'm just absolutely blown away by uh, the visuals in here. And, and like, I, I think you can point to a movie like the Batman or Christopher Nolan movies or, you know, Top Gun Maverick where they want to go practical as much as possible. You can't go practical in a Lord of the Rings universe, but you can make the visual effects absolutely stunning. But we find with a lot of those Marvel shows, or in those Marvel movies, though, it's just kind of this cartoonish element rather than like photorealistic Neil Blomkamp sort of dealio. And I, I, I don't want to pump it up too much for you, Cam, but it, it's it's visually mind blowing what's going on here. And look, um, we heard how it's you know the first season's costing you know like a billion dollars or whatever. It's all there on screen, and that's all I'll say about this. And I tie it back to Star Trek. In as much as you can tell they're spending a lot of money on these live action shows, and sometimes I wish they spent more time uh, in kind of like bottle episodes, uh, not necessarily the Elysian Kingdom kinds of bottle episodes. But no, um, no, yeah. no. <laughs> no. <laughs> don't take me back to the Elysian Kingdom. <laughs> but um, put the, the VFX budget towards improving some of the visuals and you will be able to stun people in a way that I, I still watch episodes of, say, like, uh, you know, uh, TNG, in which you're using, like, models, and I'm far more blown away by what they're able to do and envision with this model work than I am with, like, oh, look, uh, you know, Spore Drive, I bet I know how they did that, a computer, you know, CGI, that sort of stuff. And I'm kind of baffled, and we've talked about it already a lot, but just how, like, you know, say, like, Discovery, how, like, Sometimes its effects can look really good, and then sometimes it's like they don't know how to make them look decent, and they're putting money into things that don't look good, like, you know, the yeah. the flash pots in the background going off during, like, uh, you know, destruction scenes, like, that are clearly timed and look like you're at a concert. Things yeah. like that, like, they cost money, and it would take effort to build those into your set. I'm sure they were really excited when they're testing them out and showing them to everyone, and then you see it on the screen, and you're like, this was a waste of money. Like, it just doesn't look good. And so, like, it, it, sometimes it's about managing resources. There, there's no waste of money on anything I've seen at Rings of Power. Um, yeah. There's one, uh, it, it's interesting, like, there's one moment uh, at the end of episode one where I, I've heard mixed things. Like, some people thought it looked visually spectacular. Other people thought it didn't, like, it looked kind of cheap. Um, I kind of fall in the middle. But other than that, I'm just, like, I... I can't emphasize enough. Like, um, you're getting your billion dollars worth, Bezos. That's all I will say. And it does seem with, like, more of these things clicking with people, like a lot of the Star Wars shows, you know, uh, look, we weren't big fans of Obi-Wan, but a lot of people really liked Obi-Wan, and Mandalorian is very popular. 
Um, and then Lord of the Rings, I mean, I've seen a lot of praise um, as it's kicked off, as well as, you know, the launch for House of the Dragon. These are well-known franchises that are very much pleasing fans and generating buzz. And that is something that Star Trek has struggled at yeah. really prior to, um, you know, Strange New Worlds. Strange New Worlds, big success story in that regard. But when you look at, like, Discovery and Picard, those two in, in particular have very much struggled to deliver in that same way. Uh, speaking of uh, failing to like, generate buzz, or at least excitement within the fan community, I, I'm thinking about kind of uh, being inundated with these Marvel shows, and finally after finishing Moon Knight, I just, I got burnt out, and unfortunately... That came when you had two uh, women-led TV series in uh, Miss Marvel and She-Hulk. Those are the next two to premiere. And I, I just, it's not like I'm not watching those shows because they're led by women. It's just I've officially gotten burnt out on the Marvel Universe. And um, it was because of, finally, because of a, a male lead driven show which was moon knight i think marvel did have the benefit of starting off with um a woman-led series in uh uh oh why am i blanking on the name of uh one division one division okay yeah one division uh, i i will put one division i i know you I, i'm much higher on one division than you are but i put one division and loki as the top two marvel shows that have premiered um by a long shot and then there's like a big dip and then you've got stuff like say um uh, it's probably Winter Soldier, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, and, you know, there's it's just your mileage is going to vary. But it's just been like, I, I hope Star Trek doesn't come to the point where we're feeling just completely burnt out on, like, just over being inundated with series after series nonstop. We haven't gotten necessarily sick of it, even though our critiques have been quite cutting of um, two of the live action series. That's true. Um, but it looks like things, at least where we're sitting are kind of on an upswing you know strange new worlds has been delivering we've been very happy with prodigy and really wish they would release it more promptly <laughs> and lower decks this week we've really enjoyed all three episodes so like i feel like we're crawling out of that discovery picard era into something more promising we just have the vestigial tales that are picard and, <laughs> and discovery still hanging on well yeah look picard's gonna wrap up uh early next year and you and I seem pretty confident that season five, likely the last season of Discovery, just based on the economics of it, you know, it's getting 10 episodes rather than the uh, 13, 14, 15 it's gotten in previous seasons. And it's also the show's got to be extremely expensive for, uh, you know, Paramount CBS. And I don't know how much it's really returning in terms of buzz or, or driving subscribers to Paramount Plus at this point. I think it's just prohibitively expensive, even though I totally understand there are a lot of fans out there of Discovery. Uh, it's just, it's not a show that's working for you and me at this point. Nope, but when we were in Vegas, those panels were pretty packed. For they really both, were. Yeah. yeah, both Picard and Discovery. So yeah. clearly there's a fan base there. So, you know, it happens. There is a panel going on that surprised me, um, like how few people there were. But I just wonder... I don't know, like, I would have expected, oh, you know, it, maybe it was Lower Decks, because I think um, Thursday, first day of the convention, oh, yeah. that was the yeah. Lower Decks panel with uh, Don Lewis and um, and Tawny Newsom, and everywhere we looked, everybody was dressed up in Lower Decks uniforms, and it wasn't like I said, uh, I would say it was a sparsely attended panel, 
but it just when we had somebody like um you know the, the picard or the discovery panels fill out there's more people at those ones and I, I just wonder how much of it though is like those panels are on the weekend and, and this is like uh lord x is on a thursday you know lots of people still flying in maybe that was more to do with that i wonder how a lord x panel would fare on the on a weekend though yeah i think it probably would have been busier because i think the picard one was on saturday wasn't it i believe so yeah yeah which is the busiest day of the convention so it would make sense there'd be there'd be a lot of people there showing up because whether they liked picard or not i'm gonna assume a lot of them did enjoy it um it's very recent in their mind and they want to see those actors on stage was mulgrew the most packed panel of the convention i think so yeah yeah okay look i i just uh putty in our hand or uh, we're putty in her hands at this point so i hope you know maybe the the um official convention happening uh in may in seattle i hope they are able to nab her as a guest like that would just be awesome uh to catch her again i'm really pumped for seattle and I, i'm very curious how read pop which is running the official they have the license for the official convention how they are going to run things and how it's going to be different than creation which you know we have our complaints but uh creation is generally kind of a, a well-oiled machine and I, I i'm generally impressed by what they're able to do um, also seattle's quite close to us here in vancouver it's like a three-hour drive so that makes it very convenient uh, to get down there um uh, quite economical too and it's just going to be a different vibe going to a convention like this. I wonder what the size is going to be like uh, versus what we get uh, in Vegas, where the Seattle Convention Center, it, it's quite big as well, and it's right downtown. So it's going to offer kind of a different vibe than what you get if you're typically off strip at the Rio in Vegas, whereas, you know, we did have it at Bally's just last month um, uh, for the Star Trek convention on the strip, which that also provided kind of a different vibe too. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing like size wise how it compares and also just programming wise how it differs because like i i like the way creation does a lot of its programming but i'm also looking for some shakeups and to see things done in a different way because i find it hard to in some ways i find it hard to critique the vegas one because i don't have experience of something better that's true um because when we go to like those fan expos like what can you really say about those fan expo panels right? they're not better than the panels that you get at creation Exactly. And yeah. so like I'm looking to see what, you know, the official con does that's different that I can maybe then going forward point to and really say what my preferences are. Yeah. Oh, I, I guess I can share this story now. But um, so a former uh, co-worker of mine was hosting the uh, the Magna Wen um, panel at Fan Expo back in uh, February. He's no longer my co-worker, but it's just like he's like making um, Joy Luck Club jokes. And just the the <laughs> look on Ming-Na Wen's face is just like, she's kind of like, he, he wasn't really quite reading the room there. And I was just like, okay, it was a bit of an awkward panel moment. So um, I'll just leave it at that. And um, uh, yeah, I, I would just say that the one critique that I do have of this last convention uh, run by Creation is I think they were stuffing way too many people onto a lot of these panels. Like you'd have panels of like, um, seven to nine people where they really should be at the very most like three or four and i hope that lesson is uh learned when you know go going into seattle in a few months yeah yeah no a hundred percent like those those huge person panels don't really work and uh you just don't get the big moments out of them and i think ultimately that's what they want they want big con moments that people are going to talk about and that are you know maybe going to show up on social media and things like that and you don't get those when it's 
hopping person to person asking them how they got the job. <laughs> but can I say, uh, of the uh, of the moderator who kept asking that question, that was the best question that that moderator was asking because the moderator would then follow up. So tell me a story about working on Star Trek, and he just got these <laughs> like like uh, lost deer in the headlight faces from the panelists because they're like, what, what I. I you need a story on the spot. Like you need to be very specific about yeah. the stories that you want from them. Tell me, what was it like getting fitted for your Lursa slash Bator costume, which that seems like very revealing and lots of comments have been made. Did you realize at the time as a young actress, you know, there could be a little bit of uh, maybe some attention you didn't appreciate, especially when we heard what uh, Gene Roddenberry came running down to the set. We, we've heard that story. Uh, before you know ask a super specific question and uh, it doesn't have to be all about like sexualizing like actors that's just kind of an example that i was using from a particular panel where that that moderator um could have used a little bit of help there yeah yeah i mean moderating is a fine art and um (laughs) we have seen that it's not always (laughs) done the best don't make don't make joy luck club jokes that's <laughs> that's another uh, piece of advice. Yeah, not not great, not great. Also, yeah. no one in the room really knows what that movie is. It's a pretty obscure movie. It's yeah. good. I recommend yeah. it to people, yeah. but it's not one that mainstream audiences really have embraced. It's also almost thirty years old at this point. Like that's also true. Yeah, like okay, look. Um, I would say Independence Day is almost thirty years old. I think more people would get the Independence Day reference than Joy Luck Club. That's right. And you can come to this podcast every week from this point forward for Independence Day jokes that the <laughs> yes. whole world can appreciate. No, and Joy Luck Club jokes, too. Come on. <laughs> we don't those discriminate. Two, those two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod. Now, Tyler, what are we doing next week? <laughs> well, we'll cover episode four of Discovery, or not of Discovery, of, of Lower Uh-oh. Decks. Uh-oh. <laughs> Lower no, we decks. are going to cover episode four because that's uh, the the discovery episode is all about the uh, uh, Starfleet Academy cadets. Cam, we just mm, we, we want to mm. do a re another review of that one there. So um, a retrospective, if it, you will. Yeah, it, it, it's a humdinger, if you will. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll come back with more lower decks talk. There, there's obviously going to be some more news to dig into as well. So look, I I think for the time being we'll do lower decks week to week. Um, and yeah, we'll go from there. Like I I. I'm more interested in dissecting Lower Decks week to week than I ever was uh, Star Trek Discovery Season 4 week to week. That's why we had to start bunching them up in like, you know, two to three episodes because, I don't know, they're just like, we didn't have that much to say about mm. Discovery anymore. Yep. Okay, you can, of course, find us on Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in Voice of Science, Smith. And you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O. O is in one song jukebox, <laughs> N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Well, you've been strutting, cause now you know how to do the ooby-dooby. Baby, let's go. Transfer complete.